This morning we are going to pick up the story of God in the book of Romans. I want to invite you to take your Bibles, if you have them, to turn to Romans chapter 10. And while you're turning to Romans chapter 10, I just want to remind you a little bit of where we are in this great letter. The book of Romans is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. And the church at Rome was mixed with ethnic Jews and with Gentiles. And they actually had some racial problems in their church because of it. But what he has done is he is addressing those problems with the good news of Jesus Christ. Or the Gospel. And he starts off by saying, I am not ashamed of the Gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. And his point then is that the, the Jews and the Gentiles have received good news about what God has done through Jesus in His cross and His resurrection that if they believe it, their sins can be forgiven, they can be made right with God, they can have every spiritual blessing as we've already read, as Tim read earlier from Ephesians, because God is doing that out of love for us in the person of Jesus. And so throughout the book, he tells us of all of the good that God is doing for us in the person of Jesus. And it comes to this climax, you might say, in Romans chapter 8, which is just a beautiful, beautiful chapter. And it's full of all sorts of promises not the least of which is that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That if you are in Christ Jesus, God will not condemn you. That there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. There are all kinds of wonderful expressions of God's promise there in Romans 8. And that causes us then to ask some questions. If God's promise is that good to those who are in Christ Jesus. What about those who were the ethnic Jews who had received the Old Testament and all of its promises? If God made good promises to the Jews and they were going to be His people, and now He's expressing His love to those who trust in uh, the Messiah... How is God's Word still true? In other words, did God's Word to those Jews fail because God's promise is now so good to those who believe in Jesus? This is the way that He expressed it in Romans 9. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. That's the very problem that He is looking to address. Has God changed His mind? Has God, is God doing something different than He was doing in the beginning? Was God mixed up at first and now gets it right? You can ask the question however you want. Is the Old Testament a different God and a different message than the New Testament? Has the old thing failed? And his answer is that the old promise to Israel did not fail because God, it's doing exactly what God intended it to do all along. Namely, God intended to save those who trust in Him by faith from the beginning. And so, 
He didn't intend it to be an ethnic religion primarily. And that's his answer right here. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, he, he separates. He says, yeah, Abraham had more than one son, but it was Isaac who got the promise. Isaac had more than one son, but it was Jacob who had the promise. And he's saying, already from the very beginning, not everyone who's descended from Abraham enjoys Abraham's promise. That's how it was from the beginning. That's how it is now. So he's saying the rules haven't changed. Then he asks the question again, just to make sure that we are on board. Right? In, chapter, in verse 14 of chapter 9. Is there injustice in God's part? If some are in and some are out, how can that be fair? How can God um, do that? And his answer, very simply to that objection, is to say, God is God. And God is free to do it how God wants to do it. And it's like, how does that even work? Mind blown, right? I don't get how God is so different from me. But He is. He's in a completely different category than you are. And so that's what He says. For He says to Moses, I'm going to have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And I am God and I will be good to some. Now, for some of us, that doesn't sit that well. And we're like, I don't like that idea. Okay. So, he asks this question again. See, the, all of Romans 9 is a series of questions trying to come to grips with the ethnic problem these people had in their church where some have the heritage of being Jews and some don't. And they're trying to see who's uh, better than whom. You will say to me, why does God still find fault? Or who can resist His will? So if God is the one who shows mercy, if it's not all up to a person who's really trying hard and really being a better person, if it's not up to that person, how can you find fault then with them? Is it not God's fault instead of their fault? For who can resist God's will? So that's, that's his line of questioning. <laughs> if you didn't like... Where he left the other question, you won't like this one either because his answer then in verse 20 is this. Who are you to ask the question? And to answer back to God. Does the thing molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Does the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? He said, God is God. God is different than you. God is free to do what God wants to do. Namely, to show mercy to whom He'll show mercy and compassion to whom He'll show compassion. You can be thankful that God is free to give you the grace that we just sang about a moment ago. And that people don't like that either, right? Who are you to to, to talk back to God? He doesn't leave it there though. He doesn't leave that don't talk back to God. You know, it's like a, a parent who says don't talk back to me. But if that's all the parent does, the child will still be frustrated. Here, that's, if that's all he did, we could be frustrated with God. But that's not all he does. Instead, he goes, continues on in Romans 10, and he says, yes, who are you to talk back to God? But you also must know that people are accountable. And they're accountable for, for acting on 
The knowledge of God. Look at what they, I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God. They're fired up. They're religious. They, they want to define themselves as God's people. But they're doing it in the wrong way. Now, this is a, this is a big problem because there are all sorts of people who, who may be sincere about their religion or sincere about their morality and define themselves as basically a good person, but they are acting in a way that is not how God has revealed. For instance, Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for Me. Jesus is saying there is only one way to be right with God and it's through Jesus. Jesus Himself claimed that. If people don't know that, and they are trying to be religious apart from Jesus, that's a problem. No matter how sincere they are. And he goes on then in the next verse to say they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They didn't know that God intended all of this to make sure that you were righteous by faith in Christ. And instead, they tried themselves to establish their own righteousness. They tried to make themselves right with God by their performance, by their being a good person, by their religion. And then he said, the issue for them is that it was willful. See this? They did not submit to God's righteousness. They're accountable ultimately because their lack of submission to God is a willful choice not to do it God's way. Not to come to God on His terms. It's an attempt to set their own terms for how they're going to deal with God. And that will not work. And so God says, first of all, I'm free to show compassion on some. And He's also saying, you know what? Those who refuse Me are doing it willfully. Okay, And then he bring, that brings us to verse 4 of chapter 10. Okay, I haven't even started my sermon yet. I'm sorry. And I'm sorry until verse 5. But I want you to see that verse 4, what verse 4 tells us is that the whole idea of those who would perform or who would try and be religious or do something to make God like them are missing it because they're trying to, to work with the law, trying to keep the law, trying to do good things, when in effect, Jesus is the goal of that law. And because He's a goal, when you hit the goal, you stop shooting at the goal. When you get to the destination of your trip, you stop traveling. Because Jesus is the end of that trip. And what He says is the way to be righteous then is to believe. Jesus is the end of the law for everyone who believes. And the reason I wanted to do all of this was to get to this verse because the identification of Jesus as the climax of the law is, uh, will help you understand 5 through 13. Because he, he, he identifies Jesus there with uh, the law. So now, let's look at what he has to say in 5 through 13. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. 
that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And so here, he identifies Jesus with the law. So whatever it it was going to take for you to fulfill the law, Jesus has done as the one who is the climax or the end or the fulfillment of the law so that trusting in Jesus counts as fulfilling the law. Okay, that... Notice how he does this. Okay, we're just going to try and walk through this text and see that he's identifying Jesus with the law. And if your faith in Jesus is real, it will count for you as though you had kept the law. So he says, Moses writes about the righteousness based on the law. And then he quotes from Leviticus chapter 18. The person who does the commandments shall live by them. The person who does the commandments shall live by them. If you're going to make the commandments work, it has to be the way that you live. It's not a religious system. It's not boundaries that you set up around your group to say we keep the Sabbath or we practice the Passover or we do these certain things. It has to be reflected in life. And that's from Leviticus chapter 18. And he does that then to set up another Old Testament quotation. Now you'll notice, I just want you to notice anyway, that this is, it's like I hope my sermons will be. Let me say it that way. Okay, I want you always looking at your Bible while I'm talking. I want you always to be thinking, hmm, did did the Bible say this or did Scott just make this up out of his own head? You're fair to you can ask that anytime you want. Okay? And you, Paul is saying, I don't want you to think I'm making this up out of my head. The Old Testament says, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And then he brings in another quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now this one's a little more extensive, and I want you to see what it says. So you don't have to turn there. I'm going to show it up here, but you can look at Romans 10 while I read Deuteronomy 30. The reason I want you to do that is he quotes it, but it's, he, he changes it a little bit so that you can see how a Christian would understand this Old Testament. How he says this is how the righteousness of faith comes through the law. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. 
The commandment is not too hard, neither is it far off. So he starts off by saying, in effect, don't make this harder than it needs to be. This is not going to be hard. You might look at all of the laws of the Old Testament and say, oh, I can never keep those. If you did, you're missing the point. Because this is not too hard. And it's not far away. So, he says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 12, it is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Now, you notice that this verse and the next and the next end with that we may hear it and do it. Hearing it and doing it seems to be the point of this. Hearing what and doing what? It. Okay. Bring it to us. That it is the commandment or the law. Now remember, we just looked at verse 4 of chapter 10 that said Christ is the end of the law. So, for this commandment that I command you this day, not too hard, it's not far off, who's going to bring it down? That we may do it. Don't look. At, don't say that it's beyond the sea. So that somebody have to go over the sea and bring the commandment to us that we might hear and do it. It's not that hard. No, he says, the word is very near you. The command is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. So the, his point here in Deuteronomy is that God wants you to do. The law. Now, what is that doing like? What does it mean to do the law? So, this is how he connects the law and Christ. <clears throat> he starts off. You remember how it was in Deuteronomy, right? You just remember that. It said, The commandment that I command you is not too hard. The command I command you. Look here, it says, oh, the righteousness based on faith. You see, they were from the beginning to understand that this commandment was something to be believed to be, to, that would bring righteousness based on faith. So don't say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? You remember what Deuteronomy said, right? That is to bring it down. We said what? The, the command. But here... He identifies Christ as the end of that, the goal of that command. And he says this was ultimately a Christian thing. Who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Who's going to create this incarnation? You don't need to have, don't need to worry about it. Jesus has already come down. Then he says, well, who descended into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Again, Christ being identified with the law. It's, Christ is the end of the law. And so he ultimately then says, this word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. What word is that? The word of faith that we proclaim. We have been telling you, you must trust in Jesus. And he's suggesting now that that is not a different message than God has been giving all along, but rather it is the culmination and the climax of that message. So that if you are going to do the law, if you're going to do all that God requires, the only way you can do all of that 
is by trusting in Jesus to have done it for you. That is what he... That is the word of faith. And so he smashes the law and Jesus together in a way that says, trust in Jesus and it will count for you as though you've kept the law. And he goes on to say, this is what it's like to trust in Jesus. When I say trust in Jesus, this is what I mean. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, And so, he introduces an outward expression. In other words, I am not keeping this a secret. I am expressing what I believe. Namely, Jesus is Lord. So, what is it then that you you must believe enough to say it? Jesus is Lord. You'll notice that this is right in the middle of all of those Old Testament quotations. This is part of his Old Testament sermon that he's preaching, right? And he said, you go back to the Old Testament, back to the Old Testament, where the name for God Himself is Lord. You look through your Old Testament, it says, the Lord, thus saith the Lord, right? That's who he's talking about here. You must believe that Jesus, This Jesus, born in Bethlehem, living in, uh, growing up in Nazareth, living in Israel, dying on a cross, being buried, rising again, this Jesus is Yahweh, or the God of the Bible. It is so important to realize that what God is doing in Jesus is He is revealing Himself in the way of salvation. So the confession then is the identification of Jesus with God. And He says, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. So that you internally... Your understanding of what God is doing in Jesus when He raised Him from the dead is that He is offering new life to all who will believe. You're going to say, I believe that counts for me. See, that's what it means, believe in your heart. It says, you know, it's not just, oh, I think that years ago they changed the calendar because from uh, B.C. to A.D. because Jesus was there. That's, you can think that if you want. You can think lots of things, right? What he's suggesting though, then, is that you're believing in your heart, which means deep down, I am counting on it to be true. I am living as though God raising Jesus from the dead changes everything for me. And so I'm confessing that Jesus Himself is God. I'm believing that God raised Him from the dead. A Christianity without a resurrection is nothing at all. It is simply an empty set of practices. Because the resurrection of Jesus is the central truth that we believe. And if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead, you will be 
saved. And that's the message of this entire book of Romans. It's a good news proclaimed in Romans. Right? That you will be saved, namely, saved from the just penalty or condemnation of your sin because you identify with Jesus in His resurrection and you are protected or rescued from being judged by God. And that's, that has to do with the future. You will be saved. And part of what the book of Romans has been saying is you will be saved from the power of sin. That you will be, that sin will no longer be so strong in your life that you will have to do what it tells you. You can be rescued from that constant taskmaster that makes you desire and do things against God. So, if you believe, you will be saved now and forever. For this is the way it works. With the heart, one believes and is made right with God or justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So he just simply says, that's what you have to do. That is the sum total of your obligation before God. I mean, think about that. This is not too hard for you. Don't say, oh, it's way up there in heaven. I can't figure it out. Don't say, oh, who's, you know, who's going to travel across the seas to get this figured out? This is simple. And you must believe. There is no other way. Because when you believe, you are justified or made right with God. You are lined up correctly with God. And when you confess with your mouth, you're saved. It's really that simple. The beauty of this, then, is that all of the things that they've been worrying about, who's Who's going to have first place? Who's going to be better? Can we look down on anybody else? Are we superior in some way? All those questions are answered because the Scripture puts it in such a way that everybody has the same price of entry. It's free. Everybody gets in the same way by faith in Jesus. There aren't special rules for a certain class of people. Those who grew up with it aren't better off than those who didn't. Those who have problems in their past aren't worse off than those who appear to be squeaky clean. Probably nobody's squeaky clean, right? But sometimes we look around and we say, oh, it's hard. It's worse for me. It's better for them. Or probably worse than that, it's better for me. I'm self righteous. You know what? What he's doing here is he's saying that is not how it works. It's the same way for everyone. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This is really a, uh, an ultimate sort of a statement. In the final day, when God judges, you will not be embarrassed. You will be not, not be tossed out and say, you don't belong here. You will not be outside. But rather, God says, you will not be put to shame. You'll be included. You'll be long. You'll be embraced by God. 
Again, this is another Old Testament quotation in his Old Testament sermon here from Ezekiel 28. Or if it's easier, you can just look back at the end of Romans 9. He quotes it there too. It's his, like his favorite verse, right? Mine too. I don't want to be put to shame. I don't want to be outside. I want to be included. That's what he said. Everyone who believes will be included. And here it is. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. That's, that's what he's trying to get to. Is that there are not different rules. God did not switch horses midstream. There is not an Old Testament way and a New Testament way, an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. No, he says. There is no distinction. Everyone, you and me included, must enter the same way. There is the same Lord who is Lord of all. And so every one of us is confronted with the same question. Will we let God be God and trust that what He is doing in Jesus is showing mercy and compassion to whom He wills? So that we look at all of that and we say, you know what? I am someone who needs mercy and compassion. So I think that's some of it. We want to look at it and say, I'm someone who deserves good treatment by God. If you look at it and say, I'm one who deserves good treatment, you will remain outside. If you look at it and say, I am someone who needs mercy and compassion. That's what he's been setting up all along. Is that the way that he intends to show compassion is for you to believe in Jesus. And notice what he says. This is, it works the same way for everyone. What works the same way? God bestows His riches on all who call on Him. God is neither stingy nor poor. You come to Him. You call on Him. And you say, God, I have, I have been a sinner. I've been thinking I'm better than I am. And you pray and you just say, God, I, I think that probably I used to think I deserved good treatment. Now I realize I don't. Will you forgive me? It's just something simple like that. God's not up in heaven, you know, scrounging around his pocket saying, it's my last little piece of forgiveness. You can have it. Don't ask again. God's not there. And God's not just giving this tiny, littlest piece. We, we already read earlier, Tim read earlier for us, that we have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Everything you could possibly need or imagine, God has given you in Christ. He has lavished on us His riches for the calling. He has lavished His riches on us if we but call, God, I need you. That is very different than having enough for someone who says, I pretty much deserve it, pay up. Right? It's a much more humbling position to be begging for mercy, which is what God invites us to do here, to call on Him for mercy and compassion, being assured that He will bestow riches on everyone 
who calls. And then he comes to the punchline. Right? Just in case you didn't believe it when he said the same thing four other times, he wants to make sure you believe it this time. So he quotes another Old Testament scripture, Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, I'm not showing that one because it's, it's an exact quotation this time. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is. It's simple, it's straightforward, no tricks. No special hoops. No special privileges. Just simply, God, I need forgiveness. I need to be certain that You love me. Won't You, won't you grant me Your grace? Just a simple call. A request. Calling in the name of the Lord and He promises He'll save. Now, Just because I've been trying to make this case all along, I don't want to make it harder than it needs to be. Because okay, that's what I'm not supposed to do. I want to make it harder than it needs to be. But I want to make sure that you get the case he's building by quoting the Old Testament. He's saying the rules in the Old Testament were that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That has not changed. Joel chapter 2 is this beautiful text. If you read it, you'll, you'll be super encouraged this afternoon. But Joel chapter 2 is the, it is the text for the very first Christian sermon preached by Peter at Pentecost. It is the statement of God's new promise available to all who call. Okay, This is in the Old Testament he's saying this. Rules aren't changing. It starts off, that section starts off by saying, God will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. He'll restore to you all the things that you lost because of your sin. And just this beautiful text about the restoration and the rebuilding that God will do in a person's life if they will but call on the name of the Lord. And so the invitation is here to you this morning. Please, please don't misunderstand what goes on here is some sort of religious thing. Please don't misunderstand it as if I just am a good boy or girl, God will like me. That is a complete misunderstanding of what we're doing here. We're really simply saying, all of us, you and me, we are all dependent on the compassion and mercy of God that becomes ours when we call upon the name of the Lord. And He promises to save. And so I want to invite you this morning. If you, if you have not entered into the promise of God, if you are not sure that you are saved, in other words, if you are hovering nervous that God may condemn you, if you're worried that you might be on the outside, I just want to invite you this morning to simply call on Jesus. That's really all. Is to say, God, I know that I deserve to be put out. Would You include me anyway? 
I deserve to be condemned. Would you save me? I can't save myself. I must be saved only by you. And you see, that really is what God is promising to do for you. If you will simply, just in the quietness of your heart, have that conversation with God. That's what God promises to do. That is the that is the saving now and forever that He promises to do for us. For us who believe. That really it really is that simple. So let's pray. Let's pray. I just want to ask that you would think about that. If you're on the outside somehow. If you're here exploring today what it means to be a Christian, you you came on a good day. This is what it means. It means that you are one who calls on God to save you. So I just want to invite you to do that. Heavenly Father, it is my prayer that You would grant us compassion and mercy that we might trust You. We might believe that You will save us. God, if there is anyone who hears who hears me talk about this, it is not certain that they are saved by You. God, would You would you just help them? Help them find the words. Help them be humble enough to call out and ask You to save them. Father, we do, we do rejoice that this is the way it works for everyone. So that we don't have to worry if we're good enough. We don't have to look over our shoulder to see if we measure up. We don't have to expect that you're up in heaven scowling at us, telling us to do better. We simply believe you've done everything necessary in Christ. And so we want to give you thanks in his name. Amen.